The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? When Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms began in China after Mao's death, he talked about letting some people get rich first. That was the idea of his trickle-down economics. But today, Xi Jinping is talking about something called common prosperity rather than prosperity just for the few. It's a slogan he's used a number of times now since last year, and we're starting to see what exactly it entails, although there are still a lot of question marks over it. Joining me to discuss what common prosperity might mean for the near future of Chinese growth is George Magnus, an economist and associate at the China Centre in Oxford and author of Red Flags, Why Sees China is in Jeopardy. So, George, welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, I should say. To start with, can you explain a little bit about what the ideal blueprint that Xi Jinping is going for in his most perfect version of common prosperity, at least as far as we know? Common prosperity is designed as a slogan principally to focus attention on inequality. I mean, it's not a new concept. We can probably date it back to around 1953 in the Mao era. And it resurfaced again under Deng Xiaoping. Obviously, for each of the two Chinese leaders, historically, it represented something a little bit different. For Xi Jinping, it kind of represents something different again. But just to emphasize, it's not a new kind of concept for the party. And it is, in current circumstances, definitely designed to focus attention on inequality, not just within kind of income cohorts, but also regional inequality as well. And I think it's part of, an important part, of what Xi Jinping has called the new development concept, which is really about finding an alternative development model to the one that has served China so well for the last kind of 30 or 40 years, but it's now kind of scrabbling around a bit to try to redefine something new. The leadership was talking this, about this olive-shaped society or this olive-shaped distribution where the top are curbed a little bit, the bottom is less, and there's an expanded middle class in this nice income or wealth curve. Let's talk about inequality then. How big of a problem is it in China? Because I think in the West we often have this idea of China being quite wealthy now, lots of developed places, but is there still huge inequality pockets of real poverty in China? Yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, even according to recent statements by Premier Li Keqiang, you know, there are 600 million people in China earning less than a thousand yuan, which is about 115 pounds a month. So that's clearly a kind of a sore. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that they're in, you know, oppressive poverty, but it's it's not great. There are many measures of income inequality in my nerdy profession, we have this kind of nerdy concept called the Gini coefficient, 
which on a scale of one to a hundred measures kind of extremes where either one person owns all the wealth or the income or it's equally distributed amongst everybody. So typically in developed economies, shall we say, since the financial crisis, this has been a big focus. So in the UK, US, for example, in Europe, I mean, we're looking at sort of measures that are up in the sort of mid to high 30s. In China, the last time it was officially measured, and it's not really fully up to date, but it hasn't really changed much since about 2018, 2019. It's about 46 or 47. So it's a measure of how unequal the distribution of income is. There are also much looser measures of wealth distribution, also much less well-defined which are supposedly in China even substantially higher than that. So I think we could say that, you know, that China's distribution problem is probably one of the most acute ones that there is, certainly for a country of its size and income per head. Mm, And how, how much do you think that inequality is kind of priced in, as it were, from Den's economic reforms? I mean, he does say to let some people get rich first after all. And that's clearly what's happened. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing, really. It goes back, if we had to date it to anything, it was probably the 19th Party Congress in 2017, when Xi Jinping spoke in very sort of Marxist terms, really, about the shift in focus from you know, what Marxists call the forces of production, which is, you know, how do you produce more and more of it and more quickly, to what they call the social relations of production, which is basically the relationship between producers of output of wealth and citizens, consumers, basically. So this marks really a kind of a shift in focus from growth at any cost to the quality of growth. And I think since 2017, I mean, I'm sure you probably thought of this beforehand as well, but certainly since 2017, I think we've seen quite steadily and uh, relentlessly, as the party rhetoric might frame it, kind of a shift in emphasis towards more qualitative things. Obviously, the environment is a very big part of this. And now we're seeing, you know, equality being raised as um, an issue that needs or commands the party's attention. By the way, I think in in so saying, I don't think Chinese Communist Party has any intention of producing or reproducing a European style welfare system. That's certainly not what is on the agenda. I think the way the party sees it is framing economic development in such a way as to lift all boats, if they can do that, right? They need policies to do that. But that's the goal. Yeah. And there's obviously, as you say, a social element to it, which is also political, in the sense that, for example, I was struck by Chinese analysts looking at the culture wars in the West, looking at the George Floyd protests last year, and how many of them came back to inequality in America as a reason for these social problems now flaring up. So I guess it's their feeling of political instability that comes from huge inequality. And I guess in China as well, you get millennial despair, people who can't afford to get on the housing ladder, despite their being enough empty houses to house the whole of the UK population and that that's the sort of thing that could create political problems down the line. Oh definitely I think you're quite right to focus on that and in fact you echo the great leader himself who who basically (laughs) you know has said that common prosperity is 
an essential part of the political governance of socialism, or words to that effect. To begin with, this kind of scared people a little bit. I mean, when I say scared people, I mean financial markets and investors were a little bit spooked by this at first, because they thought what this means or what this might mean is, you know, penal taxation on entrepreneurs and billionaires and not very much else. And then senior officials were kind of wheeled out to basically calm everybody down and say, though, well, it's not quite what we mean, but it isn't yet clear, as you said at the very beginning, what it does mean and actually what it is, what it's going to comprise. It won't, almost certainly won't imply the creation of a kind of a, a welfare model as we know it. But I imagine that, you know, over the coming year, we'll learn more about the kinds of policies that the government wants to pursue to try to bring about greater equality. Well, let's talk about those billionaires then, because, you know, despite all the comforting that the CCP might be doing, it is the case that Jack Ma has been much better behaved in the last 12 months than he has been in a long time. He has donated a lot of his personal wealth to the so-called common prosperity agenda, and Alibaba and other tech companies as well have been roped into this kind of arm-twisted philanthropy into the government agenda. And it's, it's something called the third redistribution, I think, where the third is the private company company to citizens redistribution, which should be charitable, but does it somehow feels a bit forced when it comes from, from the top, doesn't it? Yeah, again, we have to, or people have to kind of understand a kind of a new lexicon, really, because we don't really talk about it in these terms in liberal-leaning democracies. But primary distribution is what you get from work, wages and salaries. Secondary distribution is what you get through taxes and transfers, so fiscal policy, budgetary policy. Tertiary distribution is what you get or what people can get from corporate donations. But as you've suggested, you know, these corporate donations in a way are a little bit like a coercive form of philanthropy. So we've already seen, you know, companies like Alibaba and Tencent, for example, have been fined quite heavily for what are regarded as, you know, not obeying the rules or, you know, taking advantage of their market positions and so on. Another, you know, entrepreneurs have been punished or incarcerated. And I think that the this kind of tertiary distribution, which actually is a central feature, really, in these pilot common prosperity zones that are starting to be set up as pilot projects, is really a way of trying to bring, I think, the private sector to heal in a way. So you don't have to imprison or punish people all the time. You just have to make sure that everybody understands that if you don't comply or go along with the behaviour that's expected, you could be punished. And that obviously forces a form of compliance, and that includes making donations. It does help, right? So when, if they raise, well, the last count, which may have been kind of two or three years ago, Chinese philanthropy was estimated to have raised about 0.2 or 0.3% of GDP. Wow. I mean, in America, which is the champion of philanthropy, it's about 2 to 3% of GDP. So if you doubled or even tripled the amount of corporate giving in China to worthy causes like housing projects or, you know, education for the rurally deprived and so on, I mean, these things will help in individual cases, no question about it. But in the big scheme of things, they're a bit of a rounding error. There's no substitute really for proper policy making. 
Well, especially if, as you say, they don't look at a social welfare state. I read an interesting article recently of a Chinese journalist who moved to France and saying France was more socialist than China when it actually came to the welfare state and that sort of thing. And I think people don't know much about that. But the elderly, for example, the poorest in society are often not as looked after. Why do you think they wouldn't be tackling that? Is that because it's just too difficult to establish? That's a great question. I've struggled with this for a long time now, which is why, you know, a country, well, China, which, you know, professes great belief in, you know, principles of socialism and so on and so forth, even though it has a kind of a capitalistic type of economy, has extremely conservative, with a small c, budgetary policies and almost what you might call fiscal values. <laughs> so some of this, I think, is down to the structure of taxation. I mean, China does not raise very much money through income tax. About 5% of total tax revenues come from income tax. Most of the revenues come through more regressive forms of taxation, like value-added tax, for example. Some of it is down to the fact that the structure of governance between Beijing as the central government and local and provincial governments isn't quite right. So local governments are primarily responsible for delivering economic growth, spending money on infrastructure and property, social security, paying pensions and so on and so forth. So they have the lion's share of the spending responsibilities, but most of the revenues accrue to the centre. So the local governments are basically starved of revenue in a way, and that's why they've been complicit, really, in the past decade or so in all sorts of egregious behaviour with regards to taking on debt and mm. setting up financing vehicles, which are very poorly run and managed. And they're reliant on the sale of land rights to developers, which is another problem, which is to do with obviously China's property sector at the moment, for revenues. So there are some deep-seated kind of practical issues about this. But I must say, I've never really understood it. I mean, it might be about no taxation without representation. You know, that if you don't have people that are, you know, mindful and sensitive about paying lots of income tax, then they can't really and don't really deserve a say in how things are, are spent. Maybe, I don't know. It's just a suggestion. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how much the family structure also just makes them feel like they're let off the hook because in the West you hear about people who are homeless and my first reaction as a Chinese person is always, don't they have cousins? <laughs> you know, don't they have family members to look after them? And I guess in China, you know, the people who fall through the net often can call on that family structure for support. I'm sure that that's probably at least, if not equal, then it's certainly sort of a greater claim to, to the way things are in this regard. But it is a conundrum, you know, I think it's kind of a, a strange phenomenon that actually that, that fiscal policy, budgetary policy in China is not more expansive in terms of fulfilling what we would regard as, you know, common practice. I mean, obviously, one of the the other kind of sores that has been running in this for a long time is the access to, you know, public housing, education, mm. welfare of urban migrants, or rather migrants in working in urban areas who don't have household registration, the hukar. So again, this is something which is, I mean, there are lots of reasons why these things still exist or, or haven't really been addressed. But, you know, it speaks to a series of kind of oddities in the way in which the Chinese kind of fiscal system basically operates. 
Yeah. And George, you mentioned debt and local governments. I want to move on to the next part, which is just about one other way in which, as well as making billionaires cough up more charitable donations, we understand a bit more about common prosperity, which is about clamping down on debt-driven growth. So obviously, people know about Evergrande and what's been happening there recently. But what I think less people know about is actually the whole Evergrande situation recently has been triggered by central government's new rules on debt and what people can or can't borrow. Now you've looked at debt and China's addiction to borrowing for a long time now and you've called it out as as a problem, the red flag you said. Do you think that this is the right direction for the government to be going down then to, to think we can't be debt driven any longer? I think it is. I mean, unfortunately, I don't think there is a sort of a black and white answer to this where you know you either do the right thing or you do the wrong thing i think whatever the chinese government elects to do is going to extract a cost it's just a question of how big that cost is going to be so it has made i mean you know national security now for all of us actually is much more than just uh, you know armies and aircraft carriers National security is about economics, it's about finance, it's about technology, it's about food, energy, you know, almost everything nowadays is national security. And for China, financial stability has become a national security issue. And for good reasons, because if you think back to the kind of mini financial crisis that erupted in 2015-16, you know, it was a shock, really. It elicited from somebody who was then an anonymous official, but actually it turned out to be Liu He, in the end, who wrote this anonymous article on the front page of the People's Daily in the spring of 2016, saying we can't go on like this. If we keep on creating too much credit, you know, we're going to end up at a very, very dark place. So since 2016-17, with the exception of a momentary period during the pandemic, for obvious reasons, the government has been quite serious, I think, about tempering the growth of credit. It's, you know, was growing at almost 20% per annum, It's now growing probably at about 10% per annum, still a little bit faster than GDP. So the debt to GDP rate is still climbing, of course. Mm. But it is much more modest. And I think the government is trying to make an issue or make a point that it's unwilling to create wanton kind of credit anew. It doesn't want property firms and property developers to to continue to acquire debt in a sort of a Ponzi-like way because... A lot of these property companies, including Evergrande, were actually issuing debt to pay off existing creditors. So, I mean, that's just a hiding to nothing, right? So they don't want this to happen. They want to wean the economy away from its credit addiction. I think they're quite serious about wanting to do that. We'll see, I think, exactly how robust that determination is, because obviously there is a point, particularly in, it seems like every year in China is a politically important year. Next year, of course, <laughs> next year, of course, is another important year because of the 20th Party Congress. But if growth really slips away from China too rapidly, I'm pretty sure that they will relent again. But maybe not to the point that they used to in the past. Mm. But I think they are trying to keep the finance sector of the economy better controlled. They want to try to get people used to the idea that these kind of so-called implicit guarantees that people assume that the government will always step in to bail out weak firms that get into trouble. You know, they don't want people to assume that that's the case. 
I think we would applaud that. You know, we'd have to say that's the right thing to do. But it is a painful path to tread along. The yeah. trouble is, if you don't tread along it, you have maybe even a bigger pain, you know, down the road. But it's it's a, a difficult moment, really, for China, I think. Do you think that they're doing it in the right way, in a sensible way, in terms of, you know, the Evergrande situation has obviously been very concerning, and the government even now doesn't look like they might necessarily bail them out, as you say. They don't want them to think that they'll bail them out. And it was interesting that off those red lines about debt, I think half of the 30 biggest real estate companies in China would break one of those rules on debt, at least. So there are other giants following Evergrande, presumably, who might get into trouble. And as you say, how determined are they to carry this through? And in the meantime, what does that do to the economy when these giants go down in the way that they are? Well, to be fair, I mean, I think, you know, these these so-called three red lines were introduced in, um, I think, July or August of 2020. You're right, they were the trigger, really. I mean, it were, Evergrande was probably headed for the rocks anyway, but this certainly kind of sped up its journey to them. And it has found out a number of other kind of property companies too. So the fact that, you know, we're a little bit over a year since those balance sheet restrictions were introduced and, you know, as you say, 30 companies or so are, you know, in breach of at least one of them. I mean... Maybe it's too much to expect, I think, that everybody should kind of fall into line so quickly. And it's a difficult adjustment for these companies to make because they've had, you know, a decade or more of being able to assume that they could borrow freely and without kind of constraint and that if there was ever a problem that the government would bail them out. So this is a a difficult process, difficult lessons for them to learn. I think it also means really why, you know, the property sector in China, subject of much attention recently because of its size and problems, obviously, of many of its companies, it's cresting or peaking, really. I think the the next decade or so, I think, will be a year of, at best, marking time for Chinese real estate. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because property-driven growth, as most people have found out, you know, it usually ends in tears. So... Again, difficult period ahead, but something that probably has to happen. And how much of this is a way to tackle the middle income trap, to to escape it, as it were, for China? I mean, clearly, it's no longer the low cost factory of the world, considering many manufacturers are going to Southeast Asia and the like. But at the same time, it's not quite the developed country or the high tech nation that it wants to be. And, And there's a World Bank study that showed that out of 101 middle income countries in 1960, only 12 or 13 had made it to high income status by 2008. So clearly, the odds are not great for actually escaping the trap. And certainly for people living in China, it does feel like right now, um, living standards are not increasing at the same fast pace anymore as it was for a long time beforehand. Yeah, I mean, it's inevitable. I mean, that China's economy, I mean, I would say it, it was inevitable and it is inevitable that China's growth was going to slow down because it did like 20 years of double digit growth, which no other country has ever accomplished so in and of itself, that was unique and remarkable. But it was never going to continue because you can't do it. You know, just nobody can do it. There are certain things you can do, obviously, in economic development. And once you've done them when you're poor, it's very difficult to replicate them when you're rich or richer. 
And there are certain things that can only happen once. You know, you can only join the World Trade Organization once. You know, you can only transfer labor from low productivity agriculture to high productivity manufacturing once. You can only put all your children into secondary school once, etc., etc. So it was always the case that China was going to have to find a new development model, you know, at some point when it got richer. And it is middling, high middle income country now. And yes, the property sector is a big problem and it needs to find, China needs to find a new growth driver. Zero COVID is a big problem, mm. but you imagine that that will sooner or later kind of dissipate. High energy prices, yeah, also worldwide problem, won't last forever, hopefully. But finding a new development model and one that delivers greater productivity, that really is the acid test. That's what all countries need to try to do. And as you say, the famous, now famous example of, you know, a dozen of 101 countries that over the last 60 years managed to grow from middle income to become rich countries, you know, speaks to how difficult it is. In my nerdy discipline, we, you know, we think this is not about inventing, you know, widgets or, you know, things that fly 10 times the speed of sound or whatever. It's really about institutions. It's about having the kind of regulatory, competition, legal, education, social institutions that encourage people to be more productive in work and at work. So far, there are no examples empirically of autocratically run governments that have managed to break out of the middle income trap. China, you know, could be the first. I mean, I think it would be churlish to say that it can't or won't. But the empirical evidence suggests that it's backs against the wall. And George, I wonder if you agree with the professor from Peking University, Zhang Weiying, who warned that common prosperity might take us to common poverty instead, which is a pretty punchy thing for a Chinese academic to be saying. His argument is that if common prosperity means an overturning of the market forces that Deng Xiaoping unleashed in China, then that would only make China poorer. But I guess for Xi Jinping, the trade-off is one that he's made, which is that if it means he can have uh, high quality growth, more equality, and if that means lower growth, then that's a trade-off that he's willing to make. Yeah, I think that's kind of how I feel about it. I, I think that the the reform, there clearly were, you know, excesses and imbalances created by unconstrained private sector growth. But I think that the nature of the governance system that's being kind of put in place now, which is, you know, primacy of state enterprises, you know, the kind of, I don't know whether anybody's used the expression commanding heights, but that's kind of come back into fashion, that these are the areas where the state needs to be. And the kind of more subtle subordination of the private sector to Mm. kind of toe the line, really, particularly in areas of you know, data and technology and finance. The emphasis, for example, in the 14th five-year plan on innovation is perfectly well phrased and put and absolutely what we all want to try to do. But innovation is, you know, it's not about inventing clever stuff. That's that's inventing things. But innovation is very much about business processes and business organisation and management and technology that results in a diffusion of high productivity, not just in the places where you do smart stuff with phones and, you know, gadgets, but through to the boring bits of the economy like wholesaling and retailing and, 
boring services and so on. And that, I fear, is at risk, really, through this new kind of governance system in which the kind of Deng type of reform and opening up, I mean, there's still lip service to it, but I don't think there's much going on in the way of policy. Reforms are taking place, but they're not really the kind of liberal reforms that we normally associate with productivity growth. Yeah, and I also wonder what the Chinese people will think about all of this. I mean, to what extent do they care about party edicts anyway? But in terms of inequality, certainly, I was struck by how many people used to talk about Jack Ma in a kind of aspirational way. You know, he was ridiculously rich. But the fact that he was an English teacher at one point, an ordinary person just like you, that was aspirational for a lot of Chinese people that I knew. If now they're looking at these rich people getting, you know, tapped around the knuckles and made to give up their personal wealth for charitable donations and taken a back seat. I mean, I'm not sure that the Chinese people, to the extent that we can generalise about them anyway, would think that that's necessarily a good thing. Yeah, I mean, in a way, we have the same kind of problems in, you know, quote unquote problems in the West as well, because we have high levels of income inequality. We have resentment at the privileges which corporations have in terms of not paying their fair share of tax, etc, etc. So trying to find the, the right balance between the incentives that allow people to do smart things and bring great products and services to us, and, you know, making sure that all the boats are lifted. I mean, that's obviously a big issue. And, and the way we normally resolve that kind of conflict, really, is through productivity growth. So China is presented with the same kinds of problems, but I fear sometimes that it's also trying to address a problem that doesn't exist in the same way for them that it does for us. So for us, we have a very straightforward kind of problem, which is the rich earn too much money relative to where they were like 20 years ago. And, you know, we haven't had enough lifting of all boats. But in China, it's not just a question of income distribution between citizens and billionaires, but also between people and the state. So the state commands a share of the economy in China, which is way, way bigger than anything in uh, you know, the UK or Europe or you know, Japan, US and so on. And so the redistribution that has to take place in China is also between the state and the private sector. And that's frankly... Mm just not on the agenda. So that bit of common prosperity, I don't think is ever going to happen under, certainly not under this government. So finally, George, then sum up your feelings about common prosperity in one sentence. Am I right in thinking that you're saying it's an end to the den era, you're waiting to see how much it actually means in in reality, but inequality is a problem to be solved? Yeah, I'd I'd say common prosperity is, you know, it's, it's a very laudable slogan in search of solutions that we don't have articulated as yet. It doesn't sound like the Communist Party. (laughs) George Magnus, thank you for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcasts from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.